the San Francisco Experience podcast, brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 22, Episode 2, Shadow of a Doubt, talking with Sean Chang of the Hill Place movie and TV blog. We return to Sonoma County, specifically Santa Rosa, for today's film review. 2023 marks the 80th anniversary of the release of the film. Shadow of a Doubt was Alfred Hitchcock's personal favorite film. Sean joins us to discuss the film. Hi, Sean, and welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me back. Well, Sean, tell us about Shadow of a Doubt. Um, Shadow of a Doubt was released in 1943 by Universal Pictures. By this point, Hitchcock had emigrated from England and he had settled in the United States. He had made several American films by this point, including Rebecca, Suspicion, and a Saboteur. He was on loan out from David O. Selznick, the producer who had him under personal contract. Shadow of a Doubt, as mentioned a moment ago, is the personal favorite of all the films Hitchcock made. He said in several interviews later in his life that he loved that film more than the others. And it's basically, it's a bit unusual in his career. It's not a suspense film. It's more of a character study. It's set in the the town of Santa Rosa, California. And it's the story of a young woman named Charlie, short for Charlotte, who has a, a seemingly happy home life with her family, living with her younger brother and sister, her mother and her brother, and she idolizes her uncle, Uncle Charlie. She's kind of named after him, and she doesn't really know much about him, but he seems to be this really wonderful, exciting, heroic guy who pops in and out of her life every so often, and she hopes he'll show up, break up kind of the boring and monotonous routine of their household, and he suddenly does show up, and she's full of adoration for him and excited that he's there, But slowly, she starts to find out things about him where she realizes over time that he's actually a serial killer who's on the run from authorities. He's known as the Merry Widow Killer, who basically seduces older women who are widows and are wealthy, murders them, and takes their money. Once she finds that out, it turns her whole world upside down, and we we see how she reacts to the situation, the lengths she goes to try to cover it up in order to protect her mother and her family and what ultimately happens in terms of her relationship with her uncle, which had once been quite close, but now they've become more and more adversaries. And the uncle is played by, well, Charlie herself is played by um, Teresa Wright, who was an acclaimed actress of that era. By that point, she'd won a Best Supporting Actress Oscar. Uncle Charlie is played by Joseph Cotton, uh, the great character actor who had made his film debut a few years earlier with um, Citizen Kane. That's basically the general setup of the film. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned the geography. You mentioned that the film is set in Santa Rosa. Mm-hmm. Santa Rosa is the county seat of Sonoma County. Mm-hmm. Santa Rosa is approximately 50 miles north of San Francisco. And mm-hmm. in the early 1940s, 1942, the population of San Francisco was 12 and a half thousand, excuse me, the population of Santa Rosa was 12 and a half thousand people. The population of Santa Rosa today is 176,000 people. However, it was a, notwithstanding the fact that it had a relatively modest population, of course, you have to remember California in 1940 only had a population of about 5 million people. Mm-hmm. Santa Rosa was a, was a significant presence. It was a significant town north of mm-hmm. San Francisco. 
of course, being the county seat of Sonoma, would have made that would have made it the case also. It was filmed on location in Santa Rosa. And mm-hmm. tell us how he discovered Santa Rosa because he was looking for the quintessential American small town. He was a recent immigrant from from the United Kingdom, and he was looking for the quintessential small town, small American town. They looked around other places in California. They settled on Santa Rosa. Talk to us a little bit about their choice of Santa Rosa for the film. Well, I I don't uh, remember specifically what was said about why he chose that, but I think it was a um, very appropriate location because at that period in time, California was still seen at the time as the Holy Grail, the place that everyone in the country wanted to wanted to eventually, you know, move to a land of hopes and opportunity. When people think of California, they think of Los Angeles or Hollywood, but that wasn't necessarily just the case. I think Santa Rosa represented for people that were not looking for an urban lifestyle. It represented all that that kind of hope and dreams, but on a more, much more rural, probably more modest scale for people who you know were more comfortable with that. I do know that one of the reasons why they um, filmed in Santa Rosa was because there's a news article, not a news article, but there was an interview or an article written by the cinematographer Joseph Valentine for an issue of the American Cinema, uh, Society of Cinematographers uh, magazine that he wrote about the making of the film and why it was filmed there. And he said that he pointed out that one of the reasons why it was filmed on location was during the war, you know, as with everything, there was a certain kind of uh, rationing in terms of supplies. Filmmakers were being discouraged to spend a lot of time and money um, using up wood and other things to build sets in Hollywood. So it was encouraged to try to find films on location where they wouldn't have to build sets and they could just utilize established locations. And I think that uh, contributed to why Santa Rosa, as with all the best films, it becomes almost a character unto itself. I mean, there's scenes taking place outdoors in the town square, on the streets. But from my understanding, um, there were also scenes filmed inside actual you know, buildings. Uh, apparently, the house that Charlie lives in, a lot of filming was taking place in and around that house. Mm-hmm. And also the local bank um, in the interiors, there were interior scenes filmed at the local bank at the local Western Union office, at the library, and at, uh, at a kind of a dive bar that Charlie and her, and her uncle you know, go to to have a very dramatic conversation. Those, scene, those locations were utilized very effectively in the film to try to you know, create a sense of community. I, I've never been to Santa Rosa. I only know of Santa Rosa you know, from the movies. Um, how did you feel it dramatized Santa Rosa at the time, Jim? I think they captured, I think he captured the essence of Santa Rosa. For instance, the train station where Uncle Charlie arrives on his cross-country mm-hmm. train journey from Philadelphia. That train mm-hmm. station is still there. It is a, a classic granite building and it is now the train station for the local commuter train and the smart train so mm-hmm. it's uh, still in use it's also it serves a dual purpose also as a uh, as a museum the house mm-hmm. where the film was made is 904 mcdonald avenue and that's about 10 blocks from downtown santa rosa where a lot of the filming took place in the downtown area but of course mm-hmm. the the original the house where it took place is 904 mcdonald avenue i i went over there a couple of weeks ago in preparation for this episode still it looks exactly the way it looks in the film it's a Beautifully, it's a broad, tree-lined street, McDonald Avenue. It was named for the 
developer who in the early 1900s developed higher end homes on that street mm-hmm. and named the street yeah. after himself. The house is a private residence today and that street is a magnet at Halloween time where you get lots of hundreds and hundreds of kids. A couple of years ago on Halloween night as kids were trick or treating, the mm-hmm. owners of the house actually screened shadow of a doubt on the front of the house. So they use the house as a kind of a screen, if you will, to, mm-hmm. to show the film as the trick-or-treaters were making their way around McDonald Avenue. McDonald Avenue was also the site of the 1960 Walt Disney film Pollyanna. It was uh, oh. the, the 1960 Pollyanna uh, film was with, filmed. With in, Haley Mills? With, with Haley, Haley Mills. Mills, yeah. It was yeah. filmed on that street also. There's a, uh, on the opposite side of the street, on the odd number side of the street, there's a, a beautiful classic Victorian home, where, which is the home from uh, Pollyanna. In any case, that's, uh, the, that should give the listeners a sense of the real neighborhood where this film took place. And it truly is still a very attractive, tree-lined, mom-and-apple-pie kind of neighborhood 80 years on. I remember you had shown me pictures that you took of the house that day, and it pretty much looked like time had stood still. You know, what did you think about the portrayals of the of the people in that town, Jim? Did you feel like it was a accurate or fair portrayal of people who live in that town, or did you think it was a little bit dramatized for you know film purposes? No, actually, I think I think uh, Hitchcock caught the the character of the the citizens of Santa Rosa, notwithstanding the fact that it was a relatively small town of twelve thousand people. Uh, Mm -hmm. at the time of the filming. Santa Rosa and Sonoma County, even though it's only 50 miles away from San Francisco, it has a a very different kind of ethos. And uh, Mm -hmm. people tend to be, as you would expect in a smaller town, people tend to be friendly, more open, as as they were portrayed in the film. And that's still very much the case today. Of course, San Francisco is the uh, the big metropolis, at least it is. Uh, at least it is for us in Northern California, and uh, being 50 miles away from San Francisco, from Santa Rosa, it was very definitely the, um, you know, the big city. And as as you would expect in any big city, a little bit people are a little bit colder, a little bit more distant, a little bit yeah. more reserved. But uh, I think that Hitchcock really did capture the the spirit of the friendliness, the openness, the warmth, the welcoming culture of the town. And of course, Mm -hmm. Uncle Charlie, when he steps off the train at the Santa Rosa train station, he, uh, he benefits from that, uh, that openness and acceptance and kind of naivete, if you will, simple, simple folk and uh, good folk. Well, one of the interesting things about the film is that the film is peppered with a lot of really great character actors of the period. It's not lined with superstars, but, you know, established, very talented people. But he picked two actors who were Santa Rosa locals to play, you know, uh, parts in the movie. The younger sister, Anne, is played by Edna Mae Wanacott, who I believe is still alive and in her 90s and lives in Arizona now. And she was a Santa Rosa resident. And there's also the part of Charlie's friend, Catherine, you know, that friend that always keeps showing up on the street, you know, wearing glasses, you yes. know, and uh-huh. seems to have a seems to have almost a strange, insolent, almost supercilious smile on her face. Or, you know, in her scenes, that's Estelle Jewell. And my understanding is she was also a Santa Rosa local that Hitchcock you know, was impressed by and, and gave her a speaking role in the film. And she even gets billing in the movie and end credits. I think he really, he really was quite taken with that location. Hitchcock was not that, was not a director that really liked going on location. A lot of people have written about how some of his, late, his later films were 
were pretty much like studio bound. Like they would recreate locations at the studio because he didn't like it. But in this instance, for some reason, he really thrived filming in Santa Rosa and really was very responsive to the atmosphere there. Um, I think he liked portraying that small town atmosphere. And I think unlike other filmmakers who might portray a small town, I think he played fair with the characters in the town. I don't think he is condescending to them and looking down on them and thinking that they're backwards or um, he doesn't portray them as backward hicks or yokels or anything like that. But at the same time, he also portrays them with complexity. He doesn't idealize them either. He, he, he makes them, you know, human beings, three-dimensional, who have good qualities and they have their share of flaws also. And I'd say that the character in, in town, who probably is the most flawed character in the picture, is young Charlie herself, Teresa Wright, because it's a brilliant character. It's a brilliant portrayal. But I absolutely cannot stand young Charlie. I never could. I, 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 you're probably smiling and chuckling, yes. Jim, as I say that. But she portray she she represents a kind of personality I find a big turnoff. Somebody who has her head in the clouds. Everybody clearly has, you know, she's grown up in a town where everybody, her parents, people in town have always told her how wonderful she is. So she just feels that she's this special person and she's bored at the beginning, wanting something exciting to happen because, you know, this is what she has in front of her isn't good enough. And then basically, you know, her whole world is turned upside down when she learns the truth of Uncle Charlie. And because I think Charlie is kind of arrogant, a jerk in a lot of ways. Um, I'm using the term jerk because I could have used another word for her, but this is a basically a G-rated <laughs> podcast. Correct. That, so I'm not going to use it. But you can imply, you can, you can infer the word I really wanted to say about her by you, you know referring to her as a jerk. But the thing is, is that I really like this movie, and I think it's brilliant because. I really like seeing uh, Charlie, ex young Charlie, experience a rude awakening. I really like seeing her world turned upside down. I think she's someone who really deserves it. She deserves all the suffering she experiences in the course of the movie. <laughs> Why are you laughing at well, that? You know? <laughs> well, I, w I wouldn't be so harsh. I think she she certainly has, I, I would agree with you, she has her head in the clouds, etc. But all of a sudden, for the small town girl, she is faced, a small town girl with who's led a very protected small town life she's presented with the com the complex relationship and threatening plot of her uncle let's get into that because it brings out a side of charlie and also brings out a side of uh, joseph cotton that i didn't really associate with uh, with joseph well, cotton well i'll just before we go on i just want to say you you just you said that she's this very protected kind of life i call it privileged privileged you know bourgeois middle class upbringing that basically is entitled and insulated that's what i would describe as charlie and she deserves every horrible thing that happens to her in the course of the story and she gets it in spades Exactly. No, no. And, and what happens in the course of the story is she finds out what's happening and it really does put her in a, in a kind of a, a real dilemma. And it is fascinating the kind of um, her reactions to it, because and I think this is where Hitchcock really challenges the audience, because on the one hand, it's understandable that Charlie wants to cover up what's going on because she wants to protect her family. She wants to especially protect the feelings of her mother. But at the same time, I also react negatively to it because she's, in essence, hindering the police who've shown up in town and investigating her uncle and bringing him to justice for having murdered three innocent women. So, you know, she's not so she's her, her, her morality is very ambiguous in the course of the story. She's not entirely sympathetic to police officers or I, I know, I, it's not clear if they're police detectives or FBI agents. But one of them is played by McDonald Carey, who's a bit of a love interest. And the other one, the older one, is played by the wonderful character actor Wallace Ford. 
and they show up and she helps them up to a point, but then she keeps key information away from them when, you know, it might look like it, it could help lead to her uncle's capture for reasons that are not entirely altruistic. They're completely selfish. And, ahead, well, sorry. not only selfish, but I mean, but I mean, blood is thicker than water. So she's, she has this struggle on the one hand, she, she suspects that her uncle Charlie is the murderer. She suspects that he's uh, he's he's up to no good. On the other yeah. hand, she's she continues to protect him by, yes. as you say, by not fully divulging the truth to the police. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. And I think that's what makes this movie fascinating. And that that's why I think films of an earlier era are so fascinating because. The filmmakers, like a a director like Alfred Hitchcock and the screenwriter uh, of this film, which included Thornton Wilder, the great playwright, they made the characters complex. I mean, you, you, you don't entirely admire Charlie, nor do I think you're meant to. And I think nowadays the films, films and the mentality of filmgoers are such that filmgoers mistake a character in the film for representing what the filmmaker's underlying intention is. You know, they think that if a character is the lead character these days with the protagonist, they're meant to be good and we're supposed to completely agree with what they did on screen. And I don't think most filmmakers nowadays are complex enough to be as nuanced as Hitchcock because I don't think Hitchcock intends for us to completely agree with Charlie's young Charlie's reaction to the situation. I think he you know wants to show the dilemma but also show how somebody like her, you know, can make, you know, choices that are selfish and not entirely uh, moral at the same time. There there's several, you know, th- throughout the film they make um, they draw an, you know an analogy between her and um, Uncle Charlie to show that she's really, you know, not much different than him, that she can be in her own way ruthless and selfish. And I, maybe, maybe that's kind of what I was getting at. Joseph Cotton was a wonderful actor in his day, and he could be very sympathetic or in, in, in certain roles he could be very sinister. And I think in Shadow of a Doubt, there are scenes that allow him to play both sides of, of that quality that he had sort of a warmth a warmth and a charm but also a very cold-blooded sinister quality that uh, is put to good use in this movie i mean the thing well is, his, the thing his is, cold his cold-bloodedness really becomes apparent as he begins to realize that charlie is onto him and that even though he initially he's he says that he's she's his favorite niece and the whole nine yards he very quickly turns on a dime recognizes her to be the enemy and somebody who has to be dealt with and eliminated and yes yes and he tries several times he tries several times and and charlie and i guess initially naively for the 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 first attempt perhaps suspicious but she doesn't uh, she doesn't actually blame him but uh, as these other attempts come along, she realizes that her life is in jeopardy and that her beloved uncle is, in fact, plotting to get rid of her and comes very close. Yeah. Exactly. And I think the thing is, is that there's that scene right after she has the accident on the steps where they're in the back porch. They're, they're facing each other and the scene is shown in one shot in, you know, in profile and she's facing him and she basically just very calmly and cold bloodedly tells him that she wants him out of town or else she'll kill him herself. Yes. You know, uh, which, you know, when the movie starts, you know, you've never imagined someone like her kind of a lightweight 
fluffy person to basically become so determined like that, but she does become that determined. And so that's why the movie is, is really kind of great. There's, an, there's another, there's other aspects of the movie because it shows Santa Rosa, different aspects of the town. And there's some wonderful character actors in it, like um, Minerva Yurkel, who basically plays the Western Union lady. <laughs> and then Eileen Malian, who played the very officious librarian, you know, who's very upset when Charlie basically shows up late closing time. And then um, when they go to the bar, she runs into a high school classmate, Louise, played by a young character actress of that era named Janet Shaw. And Janet Shaw in particular, in that scene, if you might remember, Jim, she's serving drinks to both young Charlie and Uncle Charlie. And she's not a mean character. In fact, she's quite she's quite nice and friendly to them. But there's almost like a sullenness, like almost like a dead behind the eyes quality that the years since high school have not been kind to her the way they've been to Charlie. And so she's this almost like world weary by that point. Not she's quite cynical, but stuck but in a job, weary. stuck in a job that she doesn't really like. She has, shows no enthusiasm for it at all. There's a little sparkle of recognition when she sees Charlie commenting that she's she's surprised to see charlie in a joint like this to, no i i agree with you coming back to the librarian that library where that library the ivy covered library was actually demolished in the early 1960s it was a as it was an original carnegie free library and mm-hmm. uh it was demolished in the late in the early 1960s and replaced in 1965 with the current library of course it's a it's a modern monstrosity replaced this beautiful ivy covered uh, carnegie library but i couldn't let that go without i uh, couldn't let the reference to the librarian go without giving a tip of the hat to the library itself well before we wrap up this part i just want to finish up you know the one that played uh, by talking a little bit more about the actress that played the waitress janet shaw because when i went to the turner classic movies film festival back in april which is a different episode you can go look it up if you didn't listen to it one of the screenings i went to was a shadow of a doubt screening and um, it was hosted by that wonderful Turner Classic Movies host Dave Carger and then as a guest they had an actor there whose name eludes me right now because you know tell you the truth I'm not familiar with his work and he was a fan of the movie and he talked about the film at length and he made a point of saying that he really admired the Janet Shaw performance because he really found it amazing an actress of that era a young actress could play this almost modern type type of sullenness that you wouldn't expect from a 30s or 40s picture. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so he really admired it. But the backstory about Janet Shaw is that Janet Shaw had a career in Hollywood that lasted maybe 15 years. And if you go on IMDb, she made maybe almost 70 films. Oh, yeah. She never became a star, but she just kept working and working. And this shows you the level of detail that Hitchcock puts into casting for a small part as Janet Shaw had, how she got that part was she was, I believe, under contract to Universal, and she had earlier um, in 1942 made a horror film for Universal called Night Monster, where she has a really juicy part as a very sassy maid in an old dark house household. And the director of that film years later was interviewed and said that while he was editing that film, Alfred Hitchcock asked if he could screen the rough cut because he was considering Janet Shaw for the part of Louise in Shadow of a Doubt and had heard that she had given a good performance in this other film, Night Monster. So they screened the film together and Hitchcock was very complimentary to the director Ford Beebe for his low-budget B-horror film and said it was a quite a good film and he hoped Universal would give it more attention than, it, than they might give it. But because of that uh, performance, he gave Janet Shaw that small part. Huh. And to me, it, it says that even for the smallest part, 
Hitchcock is going to take the time to really study an actor's background and what they're capable of and see their other work mm. to put them in even a small part like that, that there's not, that there's no casual decisions when, when, in Alfred Hitchcock. He is someone who is very much focused in, on the attention to detail for the lead role and even the smallest part like that. So mm. that's why I wanted to share that anecdote. Sure. Because I thought it was insightful. Now, as the plot unfolds, we get to a point where Uncle Charlie essentially has been he thinks that he's he's gotten off and he knows that he has to leave Santa Rosa because Charlie his niece has told him mm-hmm. he's he's got to leave so yeah, yeah. so the entire family without realizing the secret between Charlie and Uncle Charlie the entire mm-hmm. family comes down to the train station to see him off and at this point Uncle Charlie has developed a bit of a following around town as being as being a solid citizen kind of uh, yes. because of his charitable works and so on and so forth so so the the departure delegation includes a reverend and uh, some other notables uh, some other city notables and of course Charlie can't get him on the train fast enough to get him out of uh, get him out of town Tell us mm-hmm. about tell us about that train scene because and again it's, it's no spoiler alert it's an eighty year old film so I don't think you're giving anything away by by telling the listeners how it unfolds once they once they get on the train. Well, basically, the the, the two younger siblings of Charlie want to see his uh, his compartment on the train, so they go on there and then he invites Charlie to come on, but the train is starting to leave and the other kids jump off, but he keeps her there because he's planning you know, the. He, he basically restrains her and is going to throw her off the train in order to kill her once and for all. But there's a struggle. And when you watch that struggle, um, it looks like, you know, she's grabbing onto a rail to hold on to try to survive. But when you get to the, you know, kind of medium shot, you know, they're struggling and she really makes a point of pushing him out of the, you know, out of the train. And he basically gets run over by a passing train. And that, that gesture of pushing him means that she's made a conscious choice to basically kill her uncle in order to, in order to save herself. You know, it's her survival is not just a casual, oh, he tripped and he certain and, and he died you know, while trying to kill me. No, she actually has made a conscious choice to basically take another life in order to preserve her own. And I think that's um, that final moment um, pretty much solidifies uh, the parallels between herself and her uncle. The movie ends um, with uh, showing a funeral through town, like a kind of a funeral procession through town, and then um, at the end of the film, um, well, it, Charlie... It was, it was almost like a state funeral, because... Exactly. Because yeah. the, the streets were lined with the streets were lined with all of his admirers, and, yeah. uh, and of course, they, no one except for Charlie knows the truth. It, well, except she, for she the except for uh, McDonald Carey, the, uh, yes, the police officer. He, he, exactly, he's there, and they confide in each other, and and she's confided to him, and she's also admitted to him that she withheld things from him, and she almost seems a bit ambiv- ambiguous uh, in terms of how she feels about Uncle Charlie at that moment. I can't tell if she's really mourning for him or that her grief is really for uh, over the you know the hurt and pain that that his death will cause her family especially her mother it's it's it, it, it's very i like i like that ambiguity it's kind of hard i mean she feels a little sorry for him at that point by saying he thought the world was a horrible place he he couldn't have been very happy he seemed to hate everybody but he doesn't she doesn't say it completely with compassion it's almost like 
you know, being realistic about it. And it's clear that she's covering up at that, at that moment. Anyway, she's covering up. She's going to let everyone think that he's this wonderful hero. McDonald Carey isn't yes. saying anything at that moment. The way that movie ends, obviously having her with him gives it a sense of hope that, that she at least has him to lean on. And maybe there's, there might be a relationship that might grow out of it, maybe even a marriage. But I've always had the feeling, Jim, at some point after the story ends, Charlie may tell the truth about what her uncle really was. That keeping a secret like that bottled up inside of her for a long time is probably going to eat away at her conscience. And I think that's the reason why Hitchcock movies are so great, because it ends at a certain point when the story dramatically has come to its conclusion. But the situations that have been created oftentimes have lasting you know, repercussions that will probably go on after, after the movie's over. So I think that's the thing that I you know, always think of it, about the end of Shadow of a Doubt. And also there was one element that we didn't talk about, which was the fact that there was, a God, there was another suspect in the East yes. being pursued by the police. And he basically was you know, killed by accident while you know, eluding the police. And I feel like Charlie... It may come to it may weigh on her conscience that a man who really was innocent of these serial killings is being blamed for it, and she may she may have to basically uh, deal with that at some point by telling the truth. So that's why I think the story is so fascinating because it can go in different directions. Um, when I said that I I really don't like Charlie and I think she's a jerk, which is a euphemism for a much harder word for her. Um, it doesn't mean that I don't think Teresa Wright is great in the role. She's great in the role. She's terrific. Plays that naivete wonderfully. She plays kind of the the ruthlessness and the judgmental quality you know wonderfully it's a terrific movie and i as i understand it Teresa wright who has done some you know other acclaimed films like the best years of our lives she once said that shadow of a doubt was her favorite of all the films that she acted in so i think this is a kind of a special it's not a it's not a hitchcock film that people gravitate to as much as some of the classics Mm -hmm. but it's definitely up there uh, along with you know north by northwest or the birds or psycho or you know a rear window you know it's really up there in terms of quality it's just a story that's a bit of a more specialized delicate story that's not one that one watches all the time for sheer pleasure but i think it's one of those movies that every so often when you come across it it sucks you in and you kind of let the you let the pleasures of the story wash over you so well i um, think i think you put your finger on it you see sides to Alfred Hitchcock and to his craft in this movie that may not be as apparent in mm-hmm. the North by Northwest, the Vertigos, the Birds, uh, all of which you know are brilliant films. But his craft is on a little bit more of displayed in this film, I think, mm-hmm. than in some of the other films. Well, I think the thing about this movie is, like I said, um, it's subtle. It's low-key. Yes. It's not really a suspense film. It's not necessarily exciting in the sense of huge things happening. But dramatically, it's exciting because things are happening with these characters that basically you know, are out of the ordinary. I think one thing that we want to also focus on is the fact that um, World War II was going on while this film was being made. And I think, you know, and I, I can't take credit for this analysis. A friend of mine said it recently. The whole concept of America in particular middle America or rural America, um, having a bit of a rude awakening and realizing that the world was not a safe um, and comfortable place was already happening in, you know, during that time. And I think in a funny sort of way, you know, Shadow of a Doubt in Charlie's Dilemma kind of reflects 
you know, that kind of like that kind of moral dilemma that a lot of people realizing, you know, mm-hmm. kind of the, the spiritual awakening that I alluded to earlier, that people are realizing things are not quite what they seem, you know, and, and that they need to basically take a take a, take a position one way or another. You know, mm-hmm. you either want to be on the side of good or you want side of evil. And I think the problem with Charlie is her reactions to it are so ambiguous. She's neither taking the good, the, the good uh, route nor the bad route. You know, it's, it's, like I said, very ambiguous. So, well, Sean, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts? I think we've pretty much, you know, discussed the film as thoroughly as anyone can possibly discuss it. No, I'm, no, I mean, people have discussed it with much more depth um, than I could possibly bring to it. They've written essays. I just hope that people who've never watched it before will, you know, give it a shot. And the next time it's on Turner Classic Movies or if they find it on Blu-ray, they'll, you know, buy the Blu-ray and watch it because it's a fantastic, terrific movie. I'll just, it was remade twice. Uh, just as information it was remade twice once with a 1958 movie called step down to terror that changed the premise it wasn't so much about an uncle and his niece it was more i think about a young woman who finds out that i guess her like a relative in her family like a brother-in-law um you know might be a killer which changes the dynamic completely and then there was a 1991 tv movie remake starring mark Harmon. That was done for CBS under the you know Hallmark Hall of Fame banner that they used to do, and that one was okay. You know, it was it was kind of you know mediocre. Um, and I think the point of me bringing up the remakes is that Hitchcock creates stories that other filmmakers later on felt that they could remake because the stories were so cinematic. Mm-hmm. But every time there's a remake, it might be competent, it might be entertaining because the basic story is good. But it never quite, you know, captures um, the same impact because, you know, he's not there behind the camera directing the story, directing the actors in the same way. Never accept substitutes, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) And as a closing thought, for those two remakes that you referenced, Mm -hmm. neither one of them were able to use the house at 904 McDonald Avenue in Santa Rosa because... Hitchcock had actually put a clause in the contract which said that in perpetuity, if that (laughs) film, I I kid you not, in perpetuity, if that film were ever to be remade, they could not use the house 904 McDonald Avenue. So even from the grave, Hitchcock continues to control the the image and the, the use of that house for a remake of the film. Oh, well, you know what? You just told me something that as much of a Hitchcock fan uh, as I am and a fan of movies from by Universal Pictures, even I'd never heard of it. And I kind of love it, actually, to tell you the <laughs> truth. It's like, I mean, but it shows if that's true, it shows how much this movie meant to him. Yes. That he didn't that he wanted to control, as you say, you know, control all aspects of it. Even though I think the 1991 TV movie was filmed in Santa Rosa. I don't think if you watch that film, if anyone ever gets a copy of it, it's OK, but it doesn't use the locations nearly as effectively as, as his version did. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a it's a terrific movie. And at some point we'll be revisiting Santa Rosa again for another picture. But, you know, we'll talk about it at that time. Well, once again, Sean, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your thoughts and your insights on this film and other Hitchcock films that you've reviewed. And we'll look forward to having you back next month. Um, um, well, I look forward to that as well. And I'm sure we'll, we'll have plenty to talk about next time. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 427. You can listen to us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Amazon Music, 18 platforms in total, and join our audience that spans 65 countries. This has been the San Francisco Experience Podcast with Jim Herlihy, 
coming to you from San Francisco.